that the highest activity of the soul is prayer. He goes on to say, some offer up the Lord's Prayer and imagine they have prayed. We're talking about really the repetition of the prayer of the Lord's Prayer that we pray. Our Father, uh, Scripture, and he concludes that seriously they have not You have been around. Start engaging in prayer. It is one of the most difficult exercises that a believer can be involved, but it is the most important. But we also know that it is so important, it should be examined more closely than we've ever examined it before, and it should be taken more seriously than we've ever considered it before. Just as disciples asked Jesus in the gospel, how do we pray? They looked at Jesus, and they saw him pray, and they said, we want to pray like you, Lord. And remember, Jesus frequently play, prayed. He, he set a, a time aside a time to depart from his busy schedule to pray, and he went privately often to do that. So that means we also need someone to teach us. We, we need someone to model for us how we ought to pray. Now, from this passage of Scripture, you would think that if the apostle got word back about the Ephesian church, how growing their faith was, and how love existed amongst the believers, you would think that he would say, hey, this church is doing so great, uh, I think I'll move on to another church that is not doing so well and pray for them. But that's not what scripture tells us it tells us that as soon as he heard the good news about their growing faith in the lord jesus christ and their love for all the saints he went into serious prayer giving continual thanks to god for them and then he gives first the general request on verse number in verse number 17 which i want to look at this morning and if you look at verse 17, it says, here's his general request, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. The title of my message today is A Knowledge Meant for All Christians. What is that knowledge? You know what the knowledge is? The knowledge of God. Not the knowledge of conversion to come to Christ, the knowledge after you come to Christ, to know more of God. Can anybody here say that you know enough about who God is? You can, can you? And neither can I. Matter of fact, that's part of the conviction that I have, and I know you have sometimes, that I don't know God as I ought to know him. But I want to. There's that desire in us the Spirit of God want to know. But if you notice in this passage, it starts with prayer. It's me praying for you and you praying for me to have knowledge of God. 
Well, there are, there are some things that I would like you to notice about this general request. About four things, and here's the first one. If you look again at the passage, the first thing is that the apostle is mindful of who he is addressing. Look at what it says. He prays to God the Father. It says here, the God, it says that, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, he's mindful of who he's praying to. And the reason why is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the reason why he prays it that way, and, and some people have taken this wrong, they have, say, they have taken it like this, well, Jesus uh, therefore has to pray to God, therefore he mustn't be God. But that's not the point here at all. The point here at all is that he is praying this way, the, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, because Jesus is a man. And he's showing us that he approaches the Father as a man, so God the Father becomes his God in this sense that he needed him. He needed to talk with him. Another place in Scripture in John chapter 20 and verse 17, no need to turn there, I'll tell you what it says. It says, Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. Remember, Bef after the resurrection, I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go tell my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. He is speaking as a man. And so the prayers of our Lord Jesus to his Father shows how much Jesus, as a man, relied upon God the Father for everything. In fact, if you peruse the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus depended on God the Father for his words and his works. Remember how often he said in the Gospels, uh, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own initiative, but the Father abides in me, his works. So Jesus depended on the Father for the very words he spoke, the works that he did, the miracles he did. He depended on the Father for his strength when the Spirit of God came upon him in fullness for power to do ministry, to cast out demons as the God-man and even for his own sustenance, that Jesus had to eat. He had to eat every day. In the sense that you and I do. Why? Because he was a man and depended on the Father for all these things. So, see, God is the God who cannot be thought of, truly, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. John 17, 21 tells us that they may all be one, even as you Father, are in me and I in you, and that they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So the apostle is mindful of who he's praying to. Second thing about this passage of Scripture is the apostle is also mindful of praying to the God who knows us. See, his prayer is addressed to the Father who just told his children that he has chosen and adopted and accepted them in the beloved. That means we also know something about God. And that's the point of how all the epistles are set up. 
And you see in our home group book, you'll find there's a little uh, blurb in that book in chapter 2 that it says the indicative must come before the imperative, right? You must be told about what God's done for you if you have the foundation to do now what God asks you to do. All right? They, you can't reverse them. You can't put the practice in front of the foundation of the knowledge of what God has done for you. Because then, if God's forgiven me, then I can forgive others because God's forgiven me. If God's been merciful to me, then I can be merciful to others because God's been merciful to me. If I don't have that in the equation, I don't know how to forgive. I, don't, I always have a reason why I shouldn't forgive. Right? See, that's the difference. And so he's, he's telling us here, listen, we know something of God now. You, you can't get out of it now. You have a certain knowledge of God that's been given to you. Knowing him in the way in which he revealed himself, that as the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that the God of our salvation, the one who planned his glorious purpose in Christ, for our final, complete redemption and salvation, we know something about him. So this approach, when we know that, this approach really removes certain things from our prayers. It removes any kind of doubts we may have as to who we're approaching. It may really pull out of our life any kind of fears we have about who we're approaching, and even any kind of thoughts of whether God's going to accept me or receive me, or even hear me when I pray. See, those things are removed when we know what God has done for us. Why? Because, because he's worked in our behalf. He is the God who has made peace with his children through the blood of the everlasting covenant. He's for us. See, in other words, he's for us. And if he's for us, who can be against us? See, and then there's a third thing about this, this prayer. And it's this, the apostle is aware of addressing God who is the father of glory. Did you see that in the passage? The father of glory. See, the fact is in the contents of this prayer, we are going to examine two general things for the Ephesians and for all Christians. And if you look at again in verse number 17, here are the two things that... He is praying for the Ephesians and for all believers because remember, this is a knowledge of, this is for all of us, that the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and the Father of glory may give you of revelation of the knowledge of him. So he is praying that all Christians should have wisdom and knowledge of God the Father and his glory, which of includes the Lord himself. So the phrase, the Father of glory, is found in other places in Scripture. In fact, in Romans chapter 6, in verse number 4, uh, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we might walk in newness of life. This very word, glory, I mentioned before, means something that's weighty, something that we give weight to. And of course, it would be the character of God. But glory also uh, is connected to God's brilliance, his, his radiance, his 
splendor, his majesty. And so therefore, that's what we are to consider when we consider that particular word about the Father of glory. But there's another thing he is praying here for all Christians, that they would know God. The word know here is insight, that they would know God. John 17, 3, in Christ's high priestly prayer, it says, this is the is eternal life that you may know that you may know you that that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent and then again in John 17 he says O righteous father although the world has not known you yet I have known you and these have known that you sent me his disciples see this is not knowing a number of things about God Some people can know that, hey, God's great, God's mighty, God's majestic. Many people know that. Some people who look at creation conclude that. There must be a, a mighty, majestic God that can make all this. But remember this, the Bible gives us some insight in this area because the demons have knowledge of the greatness and the might and the majesty of God, but where does it lead the demons? In James chapter 2, verse 19, it leads them to trembling. It leads them to shuddering in fear. Where it says in James, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe in shudder. They are literally shaking and trembling with fear. Why? Because the demons, remember, before they fell, they were in heaven with God. They saw God's glory. They knew they know who he is more so than we do. And they know they're under judgment. So when they think of who God is, they tremble. Demons tremble. So it's, it's not just knowing a number of things about God. See, see, one can have a deep interest in theology. They can read many Christian books on theology and apologetics and a variety of Christian topics and subjects without much knowledge of God. They can have a good grasp of church history and what happened through the ages One may also have a, a good grasp of Scripture and can find their way around the Word of God pretty efficiently and not have much knowledge of God. They can lead a Bible study group. They can write Christian blogs. And they have a knowledge about God. They know things about God, but they don't know they don't have a knowledge of God. See, th there's the danger right there. The danger is, do we know him? This is a prayer for the saints to have a true knowledge of God that is personal, that is intimate knowledge of God, where God is real to you, that where God is, where you're conscious every day of your life of his presence, 
You have your word, his word flowing in your mind. Your desires are going towards him and what he wants you to do. It's, and to know a person means more than just a casual acquaintance, doesn't it? If, if, if you say, I, I know that person, you can say, I know him as a friend, or I met him one time, or we had a conversation. But if you say, I know them, I've been friends with this person my whole life. I know them. I have, a, I have more than a casual acquaintance with this person. And a husband to his wife, and a wife to her husband, she knows him intimately, personally. He knows all the quirks about him and her. All the difficulties in their personality. All the little things that are annoying. See, they, they know each other. And they still love each other. And they're growing in that love. The Bible is saying to us here, knowledge means an intimate and personal and special, special knowledge of God the Father. Specifically, God the Father. Because remember, Jesus came to show us God the Father. That's what he came to show us. And so therefore, when we look at Scripture, in fact, just take your Bibles and turn over to 2 Corinthians for a minute, chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and look at verse number 6. Because this, this says something like what I'm saying here. First, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it says, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shone in, your, in our hearts, to give us the light, and notice what it says, of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of, of Christ. So, in other words, that in our conversion, in our salvation, when the gospel sh shined into our darkness, it shined in into our hearts, and when it shone there, what happened? That we are getting a glimpse of the light, of the knowledge, of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We see God the Father when we see Christ. And there is one other thing that I want to mention about this particular prayer, is when we come in prayer before our Lord God, with reverence and godly fear, we should be expecting some revelation of God's glory when we pray. If we're coming into God's presence with, with an intimate and a personal growing knowledge of Him, then God wants to. The Father wants to manifest Himself and His glory to us. See, here's the question. Do we know anything about this kind of praying? If we don't, we should. Because this is the prayer that all Christians should have wisdom and knowledge of God the Father and His glory. And that's going to lead into the rest of Ephesians. Where if I'm going to have boldness to stand up against Satan, if I'm going to have the strength to love my wife and my wife respect me, if I'm going to uh, be able to live in this ungodly world in a godly way, then I have to have strength from God. And when I have strength from God, I actually manifest the glory of God through my life and your life when we 
come to God in prayer and we understand that we are praying to the Father of glory. Now, let me just give you a little mini theology of the glory of God. Because this is not a subject that easily you're going to find in any place you pick up a book and read it. It's something that we have to grapple with and wrestle with and start thinking about because it becomes vitally important. That the glory of God is, first of all, displayed in who he is. When the Bible talks about the glory of God, it's talking about God's glory in its manifestation of God's character, his ultimate power, his transcendence, his perfection, his mercy, his love, his goodness. And God is, of course, completely above man and his limitations. Now, God's, God's appearance is so in, intense from the Old Testament that it's like a, con, a consuming fire. It burns everything in its path. That no human being could stand in the presence of God's glory as a human being in the flesh and live. The Israelites had experienced God's appearance on Mount Sinai. And when God met with Moses, there was a thunderstorm, there was smoke, there was an earthquake. If God were, meet, were to meet with us today, his glory would overwhelm us. Yet God reveals himself so that we can worship and follow him. The glory of God is still an important thing, and that's why God's glory is displayed in, specifically, in Jesus Christ. If God's glory is the sense of his awesome presence, the more we understand Jesus' person and mission and work on earth, the more we become aware of the glory of God. Like it says in John 17, 4, I glorify you on the earth, having manifested the work which you have given me to do. For in Christ, God has... God was physically present in this world, in Christ. So when we are growing in our knowledge of God, we begin to reflect God's glory in our life. And it starts with prayer. It continues with prayer. But there's a difference between God's glory and our glory. God's glory is inherent. It's within. It's inside of him. If you remember a passage of scripture from the Old Testament where the word of God says in Isaiah 48, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And then he says, and my glory I will not give to another. See, God will not give his glory to anyone because he cannot. His glory is inside of him. In other words, because God's glory is his own and proceeds from within the very nature of his majestic deity, he cannot and he will not share his weightiness and significance with any other creature. He cannot do it. Because if he did do it, they would be God. This also signifies that Jesus is God. In fact, 
if you turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, you'll see that there is one area in Scripture where Jesus gave his disciples a glimpse of his glory. It's a good example of the inherent glory of God because if you look at Matthew 17, verse 1 and 2, the Word of God says this, Matthew 17, verse 1, six days later Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. In verse 2, notice what it says, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. You know what this is? This is... This is the deity of Jesus Christ bursting forth from within him, showing forth his glory to his disciples. Now, of course, they were completely blown away by that. And obviously, it had to be a, a manifest of glory that was actually capped a little bit because they would have been consumed. They just got a glimpse of a small part of the glory of Jesus Christ that came through him because it was in him. See, G the deity of Jesus Christ burst forth and showed forth his glory. And of course, theologians refer to this incident when we look at a passage of scripture like John 1.14, which we usually all are able to quote at some point in our Christian walk, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw what? His glory. The glory as the only begotten of Father, full of grace and truth. Where do we see the glory? We see it in his grace. We see it in his truth. That's where we see the glory of God. That's the manifested character of God to us. God will not share that with us, the inherent glory. But what kind of glory do we have as, as believers? We have reflected glory. We have glory from without one way to uh, get an example of this, if you look at 1 Corinthians, there's not, there's not, we're not the only ones who have reflected glory. Also, creation has reflected glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 38 to 43, in this passage, it informs us that creation has been assigned a certain amount of glory. And if you look at verse number 38, it says, but God, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 38, but God gives it a body just as he wished, and each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another of fish. Verse 40, there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of stars, for stars differ from star in glory, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, and is raised in power. See, the glory assigned to each part of creation is not inherent glory. It is reflected glory. So the whole of creation reflects the glory of God, just like the moon reflects the glory and the light of the sun. All of creation is like that. 
So when you look in creation, you could see God. Why? It's, it's reflecting his glory. It's reflecting his power. It's reflecting his deity, his majesty, his omniscience, his knowledge. And it overwhelms you as you think of it. See, that is reflected glory. We're baked dirt. <laughs> That's who we are. Therefore, we have no glory that comes from inside of us. Whatever measure of glory we receive comes from outside of ourselves. See, the reason why human beings have any dignity at all, even apart from any other part of creation in the animal world, is because God has assigned us dignity. And it's not inherent. It is reflected. So see, God's glory is reflected in the lives of his people. In other words, what I'm getting at is this. The more you grow in the knowledge of God, and the more people are praying that you would grow in the knowledge, wisdom, and insight of God, the more you start reflecting his glory in your life. The more people see, the more you will see and others will see in your life that, listen, God is displaying his glory so see, God's glory is reflected in the lives of his people. Now, why did Jesus, what did Jesus mean when you, you read through a passage of scripture, like in John 17, verse 10, where it says, they are my glory? Well, it means that we are his glory. It means that God's people reflect his character to a certain extent. That God's glory is the revelation of his character and pre presence and the lives of of Jesus' disciples, no matter whatever time they live in, reveal God's character, that he is present to the world in them. And, of course, that is reflected in their life. It's just like that difficult, actually, passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians, in verse number 3, verse number 18, in the New American Standard, uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, but... We all, with veiled, unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Lord the Spirit. Now, if you think of yourself looking in the mirror, when you're looking in the mirror, who are you looking at? You're looking at yourself, right? Well, so when you look in the mirror... Uh, are you seeing the glory of God in your life? Do you see the glory of God when you look in the mirror? Another translation says it like this. So all of us who have had the veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. In other words, he makes us more and more like him, and we are changed more into his glorious image. The more knowledge you have of God... And the more, not that you know about him, the more you know of him in a very personal and intimate way, God reflects his glory off your life and through your life. That's what he does. And see, this, you see how much we need this? So consequently, we are called to reflect his glory. That's what we're called to do. It was John Piper who said it very well. God made us to magnify his greatness the way a telescope magnifies stars. He created us to 
put his goodness and his truth and his beauty and his wisdom and his justice on display, that the greatest display of God's glory comes from the deep delight in all that he is from his creatures, from those who know him. So here, here is the goal of this prayer in Ephesians 1.17, that you may grow in your knowledge of God, the knowledge meant for all true Christians. And the more we know Christ, the more we reflect His glory. The more we know Christ, the more we reflect His glory. That the glory that the Spirit imparts to the believer is more excellent and lasts longer than the glory that Moses experienced when he came down from the mountain and he was in the presence of God 40 days and the people couldn't even look at him. He had to veil his face. Why? Because the glory was reflecting off Moses and the people couldn't take it. So by beholding the nature of God with unveiled minds, we can be more like him. That in the gospel we see the truth about Christ and it transforms us morally and we understand and then apply it. That Christ's life, uh, as we understand it and how wonderful God is, will become a reality in our own life. That as our knowledge deepens, the Holy Spirit helps us to change and become Christ-like every single day. And the more closely we follow Christ, the more we will be like him. The more we will be like him. See, do you know God? Since you've become a believer, do you know of God? Have you been walking more personally with him? Do you have an intimate relationship with him? Is it more than a casual acquaintance, acquaintance with God? It's not, I, I believed in him, I, I profess Jesus, I, I know him. No, that's not what it's talking about. Do you know him? Do you depend on him? Do you pray to him? Do you trust him? Does his glory reflect in your life because he's transforming you? Many years ago, a theologian named J.I. Packer wrote a classic book, it's still classic today, called Knowing God. And he says in there, quite clearly, he says that people who know their God, people who know their God, can be summarized in four propositions that he lists out of Daniel. And I just want to give them to you real quick. The first one is this, people who know their God have great energy for God. And he gives examples, of course, from Daniel's life. In Daniel 11.32, when it's talking about the Antichrist, when it's talking about the man of sin there, he says that by smooth words he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. And then and this is what it says, but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. This is going to be in a time where people are standing up against the Antichrist who believed. They are 
strong and they take action about what they believe and who they know as their God. They know them. They're, they're those kind of people. A second thing he says about people who know their God is that they know God, they know God because they have great thoughts of him. He uses a passage in Daniel 4 where, remember, Daniel was relating always to the kings. He was going before the kings, and he was saying things about who God was. And he said, finally, to the king, uh, until you recognize that the Most High is the ruler of the realm of mankind and bestows, bestows on whatever he wants or wishes on them, then you're under his judgment. And then he says this, in, and in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree. Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Now this, he's saying to this, this is the world pyre king. And he's saying to them, listen, until you realize you're not the king, God of creation is the king. Until you realize that, then you'll not realize what God wants to teach you. See, it is our God who knows and foreknows all things that he will have the last word both in world history and in the destiny of every single person. His kingdom and his righteousness will triumph in the end for neither men nor angels will be able to put a stop to him. That's what Daniel's getting at. He has great grand thoughts of God. He even says in Daniel chapter 9, O Lord, the great and awesome God, the one who keeps his covenant, who's full of loving kindness to those who love him. Righteousness belongs to you. And then in verse number 9, to the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness. The Lord our God is righteous with respect to his deeds. See, he has great thoughts of God. Those who know their God have great thoughts of him. There's a third thing he says about those who know their God. Those who know God show great boldness for God. Now, if you ever read the book of Daniel, you'll find that in Daniel there's some pretty pretty bold characters in Daniel. Daniel himself is one. Remember, Daniel went and was taken from Jerusalem uh, into Babylon when he was a teenager. And he lived into his 80s. And he's still defying the king. He's still praying like he always did. He's still having great thoughts of God. He still has great energy for God. At 80 years old, everybody knew where Daniel stood. But one thing about people who know their God, they have great boldness. People who stick their necks out for God, who count the cost, who measure the risks. Of course, I'm referring to, at least be beyond Daniel, his other friends, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Remember what they happened to them. They were thrown into a blazing furnace for one reason they wouldn't bow down to the king's idol. They wouldn't do it. Say, no, we worship the only true God. We're not going to bow down to any stuff. And then this is what they say to him, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give an answer concerning this matter. We're not, so, we're not upset about you making this 
you know, idol and getting everybody to worship it, we're not doing it. You know, and so it really doesn't concern us. Great boldness before the king could say, you're done. But they worshiped someone who was greater than him, and that was God himself. See, they had great boldness. When you get into Ephesians, you're going to find out that someone who grows in their knowledge of God has boldness to speak forth the mystery of the gospel as they ought to speak. They have boldness to stand up against Satan. They have boldness to live a holy life in this world. They have boldness to live and, and take their family and live it for the glory of God. They have boldness in this life not to be caught off by the systems and the curtains of the day, not, not to be swept up by every fashion and fad, not be swayed by the, just the savvy of them trying to lure you in by their advertisements. Uh, you don't give in to that. That's not who you are. You have great boldness just to live for God. And then there's one last thing. That those who know God have great contentment. You know, can you have energy for God and great thoughts of God and great boldness for God and be content? Well, yes, you can. In fact, the great contentment again is reflected in Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego in chapter 3 of Daniel where they reply to the king. This is what they say to the king. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. And then in verse number 17 he says, If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hands, O king. But if... He does not. Let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. In other words, they're saying to the king, it doesn't matter what you say. And they did it with great contentment. They completely rested on who God was. They completely put all their trust, their life, in the hands of the sovereign God of all creation. And they says, God's able to rescue us from this blazing furnace, but if he doesn't decide to do it and take us home to be with him, then he can do, he can do that too. Other, in, in any case, we're covered by God. We're protected by God. So it doesn't matter what you say. It makes no difference what you say. Live or die, we are content. See, those who know God are content. Are you content? Do you have great thoughts of God? Do you have great energy to serve God or do you have energy for everything else and have no energy for God? And do you have great boldness? Boldness in your family, boldness on your job, boldness with those who are around you, boldness for God. So here's the bottom line. And this is, this is, I'm saying one thing this morning, just one thing. Concerning this prayer request in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, the urgent need of the church is the knowledge of God. We need to know God better We need to know God better. So this should be our prayer request 
today and the rest of this week, the rest of this year, the rest of your life. Here's your prayer request. That we may be people who know our God and reflect his glory by our great energy for God, by our great thoughts of God, by our great purpose for God, and by our great contentment in God. I'll pray that for you. You pray that for me. Because that's what Paul's saying. That's what the church needs. Before he goes even any further to even describe the details of this prayer, that's how he lays it out. Are we convinced of that? Are we on board with that? Are we fine with that? It doesn't really matter if you're fine with it. But it's what God says, right? So let's pray that. Let's pray. Lord, this morning I do thank you for the word of God. I, I do ask you, Lord. I ask you even now, Lord. Just as Paul had prayed for the Ephesians, I pray for us here in East Millstone, in this part of New Jersey. I pray to you, the Father of glory. I ask you, Father, that we may come to know of you in an intimate way every day of our lives, that the glory of God may reflect in our lives, that we may grow in the spirit of the wisdom of God, that we, when we pray, may get a sense of God's glory and the knowledge of him in whom, Lord, you are so great, you are so awesome, you are so vast, we could not possibly grasp all these things about who you are. But I do pray, Lord, for us, for myself, for our church, that, Lord, we would grow to the point that our energy of God would be evident, that our thoughts of God would be grand and great, that our boldness for God would be experienced, and that our contentment with God would be real. I pray, Lord, that you would answer this prayer for us, for we know it's your will. And I pray, Lord, whatever it takes in our life, whatever things you have to change in our, uh, the way we do things in our life, the way we organize our time, I pray, Lord, that we would organize our time to put you first. And that, Lord, if we pray this prayer, things have to change. And you may change things in a way that we're not comfortable with, that we don't even like. But Lord, we know if you do that in our life, it will be for the greater good and for the reflection of your glory in this world. And I pray, Lord, that we would be people who truly would reflect your glory. We would reflect your truth, your beauty, your wisdom, and your justice, and we would put it on display through our li throughout our life. But we know, Lord, already the Word of God told us that it's by the power of the Spirit of God that will be able to happen. And so I pray this today in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to the Father of glory. And I pray in Christ's name. Amen.